One night, I was at a Bible study at the Harrisburg Christian Church. It was with my grandpa and his friends. So there was 17-year-old me sitting around with a bunch of older men about three times my age. But then one of those older men said something uh, that brought a really emotional discussion and brought out some tears. The older man, he said, I worry for my family's souls. I raised my kids, bringing them to church. But as soon as they moved out, they quit going. And I have grandchildren and great-grandchildren that were born out of wedlock. I don't think some of my grandchildren believe. And I don't know if some of my kids still believe. Why did this happen? What can I possibly do? I love my grandchildren, but how could they believe when nobody teaches them? This was met with a lot of head nods, and many of the older men opened up and told the same exact story with the exact same concerns. That experience gripped my heart as well, because the whole downward spiral of the grandparents believe, the kids stop going to church, the grandkids don't believe, is super common. Obviously, there are many reasons why, but definitely one major reason why is that fundamental principles like belief in God are taken for granted. And people don't have their faith supported by anything concrete. It's all just held up by intuition and emotion. It's no surprise that once they're teenagers and a secular friend takes a reasonable attack against their, those intuitions, they crumble instantly. When people don't think their beliefs are intellectually justifiable, then no surprise that whenever their base desires say that they want to live it up or to sleep in on a Sunday, they're going to go with those base desires because there's nothing solid to stop them. Instead of a strong brick house of faith, they have a straw hut that's easily blown down by the big bad wolf, you could say. I see this in podcasts and stuff all the time. A Christian is asked a super basic question like, why do you believe in God? And they're not able to give a coherent answer. <clears throat> no wonder you hear many people say that there is zero evidence for God. For many people, asking them to believe in the Christian God would be like asking them to believe in leprechauns or about a flying spaghetti monster at the other end of the universe. To so, so many people, Christianity is viewed as just superstition, on par with things like leprechauns. How would you react if someone came knocking at your door and handing out flyers for leprechaun meetings and trying to convince you that they exist? You wouldn't take that seriously at all. In fact, you'd probably just find it really funny. But is that how we want people to view Christianity? Do we want people to view us when we talk about God as just a funny story to tell their friends about? Or as brainwashed weirdo cultists? Absolutely not. Even if people do not become convinced, we want to help create a culture where Christianity isn't viewed as superstition, but is viewed as a well-supported belief system. 1 Peter 3 verse 15 reads, But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. One reason why is for the sake of others, that they may be directly convinced, and that a culture is produced where people are more open to being convinced. But a second reason why is for our own sakes, so that we're more likely to keep the faith and less likely to fall to temptation. Think about it like this. Children, children are a lot less likely to do wrong whenever they know their parents are right there to watch them and punish them. When children can know their parents are right there, it puts their reverence and fear in their parents immediately in front of them. Being able to see them and sense them is a constant reminder. But without those sensory experiences serving as a constant intellectual reminder, 
they'll be a lot more inclined to do wrong, even if they suspect they're going to get caught later on. There's a disconnect from their senses and from their knowledge. There's a disconnect from reality and real consequences, because those consequences are out in the ever-mysterious future. I see a parallel between this and how we fall the temptations. If we had confidence God was watching, everything would do at every moment. We'd be, uh, and that he's ready to return to us the justice that we deserve for our wrongs, we'd be less inclined to fall to temptations. But I have news. That is exactly what he's doing. It's just that without being able to see him and have that constant reminder, we're like children who forget the judgment that awaits them. Put simply, the more confidence you have in all-seeing eyes watching you, the more that you will mind the course that you pursue. And arguments like these... They help us to mind our course by reminding us that he's standing right there, ready to judge us. Furthermore, they also serve as strong intellectual foundations to help us keep the faith in times of deep despair. When our hearts lead us to strong doubts, we can remind ourselves that we have strong intellectual reasons to believe. So this lesson will be the first in a series over three specific arguments for the existence of God. The one we have under consideration this afternoon is a cosmological argument called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. The basic idea is, hey, if something cannot come from nothing, then we can trace everything back to some first cause. Then we can look at that cause and say, hey, that kind of looks like some sort of God that made everything. The Kalam alone doesn't tell you which God. To find that out, you have to investigate the incredibly interesting life of the man known as Jesus of Nazareth. But we'll focus this afternoon on the general question of, is there a God? The Kalam has an ancient history, but has become quite popular recently because of recent development on the argument by the American philosopher and Baptist, Dr. William Lane Craig. The Cambridge Companion to Atheism says about Dr. Craig's work, A count of the articles in the philosophy journal shows that more articles have been published about the Kalam argument than have been published about any other contemporary formulation of an argument for God's existence. Theists and atheists alike cannot leave the Kalam argument alone. So a lot of what I present will draw heavily on his work, specifically his book Reasonable Faith and his online lectures and interviews. The Kalam is a specific argument out of a broader type of arguments called cosmological arguments. Cosmological coming from the Greek word cosmos, meaning universe. So these arguments are all about arguing for an ultimate cause to the universe. Did you ever lay awake at night as a young child pondering what caused the universe? Did you ponder questions like why is there something rather than nothing? And did the universe have a beginning? Well, things don't just pop into being. They don't begin to exist from nothing, so the universe must have either never began to exist or must have been caused to exist by something. Does the past of the universe just go back and back and back to infinity, or did it have a beginning and a cause? Generally, ancient philosophers and naturalists have held that the universe didn't have a beginning. People like Aristotle and the Greeks would say that the universe is eternal with an infinite past. They would say that the gods were responsible for ordering the cosmos, but did not cause it. This Greek view was in contrast to an even more ancient Jewish view. The Hebrews held that the universe hasn't always existed, but was created by God at some beginning point in the past. As the first verse of the Hebrew Holy Scriptures says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
So as the centuries go by, these conflicting ideas interact with one another. They clash in an intellectual, bo intellectual boxing match, and people debate back and forth and back and forth about these ideas. Then, Christianity and Islam join the stage, arguing for the same view as the Hebrews, namely that the universe had a beginning and a cause. A very notable proponent of this view was the 11th century figure Al-Hazali. Hazali was a Muslim theologian from Persia, or modern-day Iran. His magnum opus was a book criticizing some of Greek philosophy. He challenged their idea of an uncaused universe with an infinite past. In his critique titled The Incoherence of the Philosophers, he formulates a very simple argument. He says, every being which begins has a cause for its beginning. Now the world is a being which begins, therefore it possesses a cause for its beginning. The term kalam is an Arabic word that refers to medieval Islamic theology. From this medieval Islamic philosopher, we essentially get the Kalam cosmological argument. There are three parts to Hazali's argument, and Dr. Craig renovated them into the following. Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. Other ways to say the same thing would be, nothing pops into existence without any sort of explanation, or just simply, something cannot come from nothing. Premise two, the universe began to exist. And the conclusion, following from the premises, three, therefore, the universe has a cause. This is a logically airtight argument, meaning that if the two premises are true, it is impossible for the conclusion to be false. So I'll defend the two premises, starting with premise one. Defense one, the principle of causality. This premise that something cannot come from nothing is the basis of all science. It's called the principle of causality. Scientists do experiments and study things because they believe there are, a, there are reasons and a sort of order to everything. Your doctor believes there's an explanation why you get sick. A programmer believes there's a cause behind why their program spits out an error. And if you get a painful cramp, you might not know exactly why you're getting that painful cramp, but you don't think it has absolutely zero explanation whatsoever, because that'd be unreasonable. Say you're on a hiking trip with a friend, and while you're walking along the trail, you see a small orb about the size of a marble. You'd naturally wonder how it got there. And you'd think it odd if your friend said, there is no how, it just popped into existence without explanation, so quit worrying about it. But now imagine if this marble was the size of a car it'd still be in need of an explanation. So now imagine if this marble was the size of the universe. <clears throat> the universe, the marble in this scenario would still require an explanation. If the small marble requires an explanation then the big marble of the universe still requires an explanation. The only difference is their size. What about the size of the orbs in this scenario would suddenly make you think the bigger one doesn't require an explanation? To suggest that something can pop into existence with zero explanation is absurd, and I can't see how anyone could con honestly conclude otherwise. Defense 2. If something cannot come from nothing, it becomes inexplicable why we don't see this happen with anything and everything. Some might object that the universe is the only exception to this rule. But if nothing produces universes, why doesn't it produce, say, Logans or Hippos? 
Why is it that universes are the only things that can come into being? What about nothingness makes it so discriminatory? There's nothing about nothingness that would make it favor universes over Logan's. Nothingness doesn't have any properties, and it can be constrained because there's nothing to be constrained. If nothing can produce universes, what constrains it from producing things within the universes? What do I mean by nothing? Aristotle had a pretty good definition. He said that nothing is what rocks dream about. No one can seriously believe this first premise is false. The, the dreams of rocks do not produce universes. They don't produce hippos, and I'm very sorry to say, but they do not give us more great singers. But premise two is not so immediately obvious and uncontroversial. So let's explore it. There are both philosophical and scientific arguments to defend the second premise. Philosophical argument one, the impossibility of infinite causal regresses. You can't have a fully completed infinite sequence of events that depend on each other like links in a chain. Here's a very simple version of the argument. There's an old joke about a philosopher and a turtle. The philosopher has asked the question, what supports the earth? He responds, well, it's on the back of a giant turtle. Well, then somebody says, well, what supports the turtle? And he responds, well, it's on the back of another giant turtle. Somebody says, well, what about that turtle? And he responds, it's just turtles all the way down. <laughs> but that's absurd. If there is no first turtle or foundational support that's self-supported, then there's nothing to ultimately support the structure. There has to be a first member in the causal chain, a prime cause rather than an infinite regress of causes. You can't have an infinite regress of causes that goes back and back and back and forth forever. You can't have turtles all the way down because that just doesn't make sense. Most people will feel that way, but instead of showing that it intuitively doesn't seem reasonable, it just doesn't make sense, we can show that it leads to a full-on contradiction and impossibility. To demonstrate this contradiction, the philosophers Alexander Proust and Robert Coons designed a thought experiment called the Grim Reaper Paradox. The scenario goes like this. Here we have Landon, sound asleep in bed at 10 o'clock. And I'm very sorry to say, but there are infinitely many Grim Reapers set on Landon's destruction. Grim Reaper number one will kill Landon instantly at 11 o'clock, if he is still alive at that point. Grim Reaper number two will kill Landon at the halfway point in between 10 o'clock and the Reaper who comes after him. So in this case, 10.30. Grim Reaper number three plans to kill Landon at 10.15 and so on and so forth. You keep cutting it into halves for infinitely many Grim Reapers. You can imagine this scenario perfectly coherently, but it leads to an impossibility. Say the hour passes. Poor Landon obviously cannot survive the hour. But here's the question that leads to the paradox. Which reaper killed Landon? It can't be the reaper at 11 o'clock because there's another reaper that comes before that one. But it can't be that one because there's another reaper that comes before that one. And so on and so forth ad infinitum. For Landon to be killed, there needs to be a first Grim Reaper. But there is no first Grim Reaper because there are infinite Grim Reapers. 
but the hour would still pass by and he would still have to die. So therein lies this, the contradiction and impossibility. What asking what was the cause of Lannan's death in this scenario showed us is that his death requires a first cause. His death can't have an infinite regress of causes that goes back and back for infinity. But how does this apply to an infinite past and infinite causes? Well, when you have a scenario like this, and it leads to a contradiction or a paradox, you have to look at the assumptions and beliefs that make this scenario possible and chop off the weakest link. The weakest link in this assumption, is that, in the assumptions that lead to this paradox, rather, is the assumption that you can have an infinite regress of causes. The argument goes like this. If we assume it is possible to have an infinite causal regress, then the Grim Reaper paradox is possible. The Grim Reaper paradox is not possible. Therefore, it is not possible to have an infinite causal regress. Now consider an infinite past. If the past to the universe was infinite, now it would mean the amount of causes would be infinite. If you were to look at the causal history of, say, these pews, or these lights, or even yourself, we'd go back and back in an infinite regress. But we just showed via the Grim Reaper paradox that you can't have an infinite causal regress. So therefore, the past to the universe must be finite. If that wasn't enough, we have another philosophical argument. The metaphysical impossibility of traversing an infinite past. The word traverse means to fully travel across. So this argument relies on the impossibility of things like getting to the bottom of bottomless pits. Take this timeline. Here's the present, here's yesterday, here's 2,000 years ago. But here's my question. Can this timeline be infinite into the past? No. Why not? Because we'd never get to today if there were an infinite number of days before today. Because if there were an infinite number of days before today, you would always have to go one more day to get to today. But here we are in today. So, simple enough, if the past were infinite, today could never have arrived. Reaching today with an infinite past would be like counting up from negative infinity and reaching zero. It just can't be done in reality. Furthermore, let's say we encounter someone who has been counting up from negative infinity and claims that they are just now finishing their countdown. Negative three, negative two, negative one, zero. Woo! I'm done. <laughs> the question we can ask is why is he just now finishing his countdown? Why didn't he finish yesterday? or 2,000 years ago, or four quadrillion billion years ago. After all, at each of those prior points, an infinite amount of time had already gone by. So if he goes, let's say, one number per second, he's already had an infinite number of seconds to finish his countdown. If actual infinities can be traversed, and that means people can climb out of bottomless pits it means you can count up from negative infinity and reach zero. But people cannot climb up out of bottomless pits and people cannot count up from negative infinity. So therefore, considering that today has arrived, actual infinities cannot be traversed, so therefore the past cannot be actually infinite. 
This philosophical conclusion for a beginning to the universe is supported by scientific evidence. For time's sake, I'll have to skip over some of this stuff. But this, the scientific argument number one, is why this argument has become so popular in recent times. The ancient Greek and naturalist view that the universe was eternal was a dominant view for a long time. But the Big Bang has blown this view completely out of the water. The physicist Stephen Hawking once said, quote, Almost everyone now believes the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. So contemporary science seems to point toward the Hebrew view that the universe began is correct. <clears throat> so here's what some Nobel Prize winners, all of which receive their prizes because of their contributions to the Big Bang Theory, have to say about the Hebrew view. <clears throat> On Open's Eyes, the best data we have concerning the Big Bang are exactly what I would have predicted had I had nothing to go on but the five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. Robert Wilson, certainly there was something that set it all off. I can't think of a better theory of the origin of the universe to match Genesis. George Smoot, there is no doubt that a parallel exists between the Big Bang as an event and the Christian notion of creation from nothing. <clears throat> I find that to be a pretty powerful indicator that the universe, meaning all space, time, and matter, had a beginning at some point in the past. Premise 2 is verified by the most popular, by far, theory of the origin of the universe. So it stands on pretty solid grounds. <clears throat> but moving on, scientific argument number two, we have the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. The implication of this is that all the stars are destined to a heat death, to die out. <clears throat> I'll let the physicists explain this one. Dr. Pimblett of Hull University writes, Quote, this is the true death of the universe, dubbed the heat death. The idea comes from the second law of thermodynamics, which states that entropy, a measure of disorder, or the number of ways a system can be arranged, always increases. Any system, including the universe, will eventually evolve into a state of maximum disorder. Just like a sugar cube will always dissolve in a cup of tea. When all the energy in the cosmos is uniformly spread out, there is no more heat or free energy to fuel processes that, could, that consume energy such as life. <clears throat> if someone tells you that their car has a finite amount of gas and they've been driving it for eternity past, but it's only just now running out of gas, that just doesn't make any sense. So simple enough, it's the same thing with this argument and with the universe. Moving on. This second premise is the more controversial of the two. But these defenses all fall within mainstream science. So, on the basis of both philosophical and scientific arguments, we have good grounds to believe in the second premise. It therefore follows logically that the universe has a cause or explanation. But what sort of thing could produce the universe? What must this cause be like? This cause must be itself uncaused. Because as we've seen, you can't have a causal chain that goes back and forth for infinity. 
It is therefore the first cause in a self-existent being. It must be transcendent, meaning spaceless, immaterial, timeless, and unimaginably powerful. Spaceless and immaterial, because whatever made all space and matter, space and matter, <clears throat> excuse me, whatever made all space and matter can't be made of space and matter. Timeless, because what could have created something? What could? Uh, timeless, because what could what could have created time? Only something outside of time. And unimaginably powerful, because it created the entire universe. But. Hazali argues, and here's the real kicker, that this cause must also be a personal agent endowed with free will. Why is that? Well, because to go from a state of nothingness to a state of something, someone had to make a choice, and only persons can make choices. Last month, I drove to the Kansas City area to listen to a lecture by an apologist in the name of Frank Turek, and he gave this demonstration. Impersonal forces don't make choices. If I keep dropping this eraser, gravity is not going to say, hey, if, if he drops that eraser one more time, I want to make it fly up into his face. No, it just keeps doing the same thing over and over again. <clears throat> you need a person to make a choice to go from nothing to something. If there's nothing that exists but the first cause, then there's nothing to necessitate it to cause something else. To say, hey, I'm suddenly going to make the universe. So it seems the most suitable explanation is that the first cause is a sentient being with a mind and a will. That's the first argument I would give for a personal creator. But what I think is that this point is best used in conjunction with other arguments. The other arguments I would give would be the fine-tuning or yeah, the fine-tuning argument, which looks at the fact that the chance that universe began in such a way that life, even just simple bacteria, could exist is incomprehensibly small, and concludes an intelligent mind must have designed the universe in order to allow life to exist. The humane argument looks at immaterial realities of the human experience, things like objective morality and free will, and says that the only way for those things to be objective and real, rather than illusions, is God. But those arguments are for next lessons. The strength of the Kalam is in showing that there must be a first transcendent cause of the universe. When you're weighing different worldviews, you, you really have to do just that, weigh them out. This evidence makes me lean a little this way, but there's this other evidence that makes me lean this way, but then there's this other evidence that makes me lean all the way over here. You have to use reason to weigh these different belief systems out. What the Kalam does is it leans the scale towards theism by showing a transcendent cause of the universe. And from there it becomes much easier to use other arguments and present more evidence and lean people to the truth of Christianity. So, from the Kalam cosmological argument, we conclude that there exists an uncaused transcendent, spaceless, immaterial, timeless, powerful, and personal creator of the universe. And that, as Dr. Craig would say, is what everybody means when they say God. So what application does this argument have within Christianity? 
Well, while studying this, what has absolutely gripped my mind is the unimaginable magnificence of God. These attributes put into perspective that God is not some sky daddy with a beard, like Zeus or something, but is a transcendent, spaceless, immaterial, and timeless designer of a magnificent universe. Think about the gap between us and a being like that for a second. One might raise the question, what caused God? But God is uncaused. He's a self-existent. In the scriptures, this is called the great I am. Jesus said, John 8, 58, Very truly I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. What's Jesus quoting from here? He's quoting from way back in Exodus 3 with a burning bush. Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? And what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. What does I am mean? It means the self-existent eternal one. When Moses asks God who he is, God doesn't say, I am what someone has made me, or I am what something else has caused me to be. He asserts his existence in an independent manner, independent manner by saying, I am who I am. When Moses asks God a question about his identity, God answers him by giving him a profound revelation about his nature, namely that he is uncaused. He's a being that had no beginning and will have no end. The being that just bees and gives being to everything else. John 1, verse 1-3 read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So God is the source of all. The first uncaused cause. When considering God's transcendence, Austin, our, our main preacher, he gave a very compelling analogy. When talking about that story where Jesus says that those in the kingdom of heaven should be like little children, he pointed out that little children don't worry about things like if their parents filed their tax returns correctly, or other things that they could barely apprehend, let alone comprehend. There's a book in the Old Testament all about a super nice guy named Job. Job is an upright guy known for having excellent character, but awful things start to happen to him. All ten of his children die in the same tragic event, and he gets painful boils all over his body. He's in deep anguish, questioning why these things have happened to him. So then his friends come to comfort him, but they end up suggesting that all of this is his fault and he must have committed some sin for this to happen to him. So eventually Job gives up and curses the fact that he was ever born. He asks God for what reasons could there possibly be for him to have to endure such things. He essentially asks God, why do bad things happen to good people? Let's see what happens after that. Job 38, 1-7. <laughs> then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with their words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. 
Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. God asked questions that evoke imagery of him as the great cosmic architect laying the foundations of the universe. But were we there at creation? Who are we to obscure the plans of God with our words without knowledge? There are human things for us to worry about and God things that we should leave to God's care, God's care like good little children. God is timeless. He's eternal. When the scriptures say God is eternal, they don't mean he's existed for an infinite amount of time. They mean he's not bound by time. He's without beginning or end, and he's the beginning in the, of all things and the end of all things. In the scriptures, this is called the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 22 verse 13 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, keep in mind, this is Jesus saying this here. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the last. So God is basically saying, I am the A and the Z. It's a commonly held Christian idea that because God is not bound by time, his perspective is not limited by time. He sees the entirety of human history in every moment simultaneously. God's understanding and knowledge are not confined to a particular point in time, but encompass all of time. But there's also another contrary commonly held Christian idea uh, that... <clears throat> which is that when God created time, he entered into time. And instead of seeing every moment simultaneously, he in infinite wisdom has foreknowledge of everything, but he still experiences life moment by moment through time like we do. As finite beings bound by time, we honestly cannot comprehend what it's like to be, out, to be timeless. I mean, what time even is or how it works is a huge open question in physics, philosophy, and even theology. But here are two questions, to, or here are two illustrations, rather, to help us apprehend this mind-blowing idea of God being outside of time. Think about the way Tolkien creates the four ages of Lord of the Rings. He doesn't have to literally become part of the fourth age in order to do that. A writer doesn't experience the time of the world they create. They can skip or go back in time and flip through the book or whatever. From the perspective of the created world, the writer is outside of time. So we can think of God interacting with time as sort of like an author. But the problem I have with this illustration is it makes it seem like God's in time A and we're over here in time B. But I believe that God is completely outside of time. He likely doesn't experience life moment by moment like we do. C.S. Lewis in chapter 3 of Mere Christianity gives an illustration I find more compelling. Almost certainly God is not in time. His life does not consist of moments following one another. If a million people are praying to him at 10.30 tonight, he need not listen to them all in that one little snippet which we call 10.30. 10.30 is always the present for him. If you picture time as a straight line along which we have to travel, then you must picture God as the whole page on which the line is drawn. We come to the parts of the line one by one, 
We have to leave A behind before we get to B, and cannot reach C until we leave B behind. God, from above or outside or all around, contains the whole line and sees it all. How could someone not find that mind-blowing and awesome? I find that insanely cool. Here's a final way to summarize it. What we call tomorrow is visible to him in just the same way as what we call today. All the days are now for him. He does not remember you doing things yesterday. He simply sees you doing them because though you have lost yesterday, he has not. Absolutely incomprehensibly majestic and awesome. What more could I say? But what is really the most incomprehensibly majestic and awesome thing and most mind-blowing amazing is point, pointed out by King David. Psalm 8, 3-4. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? This awesome being cares about us. Not just cares about us or y'all in the general sense, but he cares about you specifically more than anyone has or ever will love you. Yet all of us have taken that love and slapped him in the face by sinning against him. So God finds himself in a dilemma. A transgression against an infinite being deserves infinite justice. As an infinitely just being, he can't just arbitrarily sweep such awful crimes under the rug. But as an infinitely loving being, he wants all people to be saved from justice. So God devised a just way for us to be pardoned from our crimes. He would pay a fine for those crimes with his very own blood. An infinite price to cover infinite transgressions. The same triune being that designed the universe, loved us so much that he humbled himself into the form of a human known as Jesus of Nazareth and did this for you and me. I'll be doing a very lengthy reading from the conclusion of a book by Dr. Turek. It's an adaptation based upon C. Truman Davis, uh, MD's vivid description of the crucifixion. Title, The Suffering of the Servant King. The whip the Roman soldiers use on Jesus has small iron balls and sharp pieces of sheep bones tied to it. Jesus is stripped of his clothing, and his hands are tied to an upright post. His back, buttocks, and legs are whipped either by one soldier or by two who alternate positions. The soldiers taunt their victim. As they repeatedly strike Jesus' back with full force, the iron balls cause deep contusions, and the sheep bones cut into the skin and tissues. As the whipping continues, the lacerations tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss set the stage for circulatory shock. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that Jesus is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in the provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his shoulders and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns are plated into the shape of a crown, and this is pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. 
After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, when they tire of their sadistic sport, the robe is torn from his back. The robe had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, causes excruciating pain, almost as though he were being whipped again. The wounds again begin to bleed. In deference to Jewish custom, the Romans return his garments. The heavy horizontal beam of the cross is tied across his shoulders in a procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution party walk along. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have him pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey to Golgotha is finally completed. <clears throat> Jesus is again stripped of his clothes except for a loincloth which is allowed to the Jews. The crucifixion begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild pain-killing mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the crossbeam on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward <clears throat> with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. And the depression for the front of the wrist, that's about this spot right here. He feels for that and he drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action. The beam is then lifted, and the title reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is nailed in place. The victim, Jesus, is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails and the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is a searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. I need a tissue. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. It is undoubtedly during these periods that he utters the seven short sentences that are recorded. Now begin hours of limitless pain, cycles of cramping and twisting, partial asphyxiation, <coughs> searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. 
A deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. It is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flow of stimuli to the brain. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deep breath, and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. God loves us so much that he went through all of that so you and I could be reconciled to him. So that you and I would say to him, Father, into your hands I commit my life. If something began to exist, then there was a thing which caused it to exist. The universe, meaning space, time, and matter, began to exist. We know this because there's evidence from physics about the Big Bang and uh, from, about how entropy works that show that the universe wasn't always around. And there's arguments from philosophy that an infinite past leads to contradictions. What's this cause like? Well, whatever caused the universe can't be part of the universe, so it must transcend space, time, and matter. This cause of the cosmos went through all of that so that we would commit our life into his hands. Think about how absolutely insane that is. This triune being that's not bound by time, that's the first uncaused cause of the universe, became a human and went through all of this for the sake of you and I. Such a radical message as this demands from you and I a radical life change. Considering the weight of this idea, we can't go about our lives like everyone else does. We can't be apathetic and carefree about what God has done for us. So how will we respond to the gospel message? With skepticism? If so, doubts are normal and healthy, so let's talk about them together. Or will we respond with apathy, feeling indifferent about the crucifixion and request of our greatest friend? If so, I can't help the problem of not caring. But I will mention this, Romans 2, 4 through 5. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? 